Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Charlie, it's good to see you back. Yeah, when you're not here, I just have to pick on Steve and that's it. So <laughs> now I can pick on both of you. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> The choir just doesn't sound quite the same, you know. Um, I didn't mention it earlier when you have prayer time, but do pray for blessing Samuel Wood, um, our daughter from Nigeria. Uh, she is unemployed right now because she was working as a graduate assistant at ASU. This is her last semester. And in order to be a grad assistant at ASU, you have to take multiple classes. She only has one to take to finish her her um, MBA. So uh, she is looking for a job and uh, uh, needs to stay in the Jonesboro Walnut Ridge area because her classes are there. You know, so um, it's not like she can take a job and go remote because it's more difficult as an international to do that. So just pray for her. They are away this weekend at um, Pettigene State Park area. Nice, they've got a nice cabin and stuff up there. So we have our dog, Sherlock, and our grand dog, Elsa. Uh, so uh, we're, we're doggy sitting. All right, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1 and also Acts chapter 9. Acts 1 and 9. Now, if you remember, hard to believe this is my, I think, sixth week here, and you guys haven't gotten tired of me yet, so uh, we started off talking about seeking God's direction, and uh, which is very important for any church, especially a church in transition like West Acres is. Then we talked in week two about finding God's purpose, and uh, we talked about the uh, story of the prodigal son and how the older brother misunderstood the priority and refused to participate and uh, didn't comprehend what God was doing. One that was dead is now alive. And so the third week, we had the mission of the church on-mission model of, the, of, of Jesus. We go with sent steps, with wise words, and healing hands, and heavy hearts. And then this next, the fourth week, is when I gave you a little bit of a homework assignment. I said, what is a healthy church? And uh, we talked about Acts chapter 2 again. Week 5, the church as the body of Christ. If we are the body, why are his hands not serving, why are his feet not going, and all of that kind of uh, stuff. Today, it is, our, our, our theme is, what is my role in the church? And we'll talk about that in light of Acts chapter 1, and taking a personal look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and then we'll jump over to chapter 9, and that's where we'll camp out and spend some time. Um, reading there. 
chapter 1, verse 8, depending on what version is your favorite version, many of you probably have it memorized. I, I learned a lot of these verses in King James growing up. But I tend to preach from New King James or Christian Standard Version of the Bible. The problem is, when you've memorized a verse in one version, and you're preaching, and you read the text from another version, you automatically just say it, even though that's not what's written in front of you. Uh, but here's chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then we'll jump over to chapter 9. Verses 10 and following. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming and put his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias went his way and entered the house, laying his hands on him, and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. What a great story. What a great thing we find there in God's word. And you notice I began by saying, and you shall be my witnesses. And he talks about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We have a tremendous job. I think we need to pray as we think about that job. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord, for the great promise and the great call that you've given us. That great call is that we are to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the great promise is back there in Matthew when you say, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, Lord, as we think about the great task that is before us, and we think about the great call upon our life, let us also be reminded of the great promise that you are with us always every step of the way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Suppose you had someone coming to arrest you.
Anybody ever been arrested? Or even worse, you know this person is a recognized hater of your faith. And he wants little, if anything, to do with you. And with that in mind, now suppose a word comes from God himself that this known persecutor has become a Christian. And now he's your brother. Hmm. You think he's coming to arrest you, and it turns out he's now your Christian brother. Something like that is what happened here in the book of Acts, in chapter 9. I can just imagine Ananias. I mean, Ananias is a lot like I would be. The Lord says, Ananias. Okay. You say, Mike. Okay, I'm here. Uh, What do you want, Lord? I I want you to go down and and see this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And, And notice how Ananias responded to that. Lord, I've heard many from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. It's almost like he's saying, wait a minute, Lord. (laughs) You know, you've done a lot of very amazing things. But now you want me to go see the guy that's going to, may bind me up in chains? All he knew about Saul of Tarsus was the bad stuff. Ananias didn't know about the encounter on the road to Damascus. Didn't know that Saul was about to become Paul and to become the greatest missionary force known to mankind. But imagine if you were Ananias and you didn't know what we know. And God says, I want you to go talk to this guy. <laughs> then you know, No, 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 that, that's not what... I, I, I misunderstood what you said, Lord. That couldn't possibly be what you want me to be, what you want me to do. This whole experience, the persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, the believer, Ananias of Damascus, this is commonly referred to as the go thy way passage. And it it is really kind of, Many people say it is their favorite passage of the Bible. You know why? Why would it be someone's favorite? I'll give you one good reason. It is solid proof that, now hear me, anyone can be saved. If the chief persecutor of the faith who has, if he didn't personally kill them, was responsible for probably more Christians dying than anybody else around. That guy. The blood of Jesus took away the blood of the martyrs and made him whole. Anyone can be saved. The sad truth Three in ten unchurched Americans say that a Christian has shared the gospel with them. That means seven in ten unchurched Americans, nobody has ever told them about Jesus. Or at least they never heard it. 
70% of unchurched Americans. You know, um, they, they have a saying now uh, that I'm about to lay a little truth on you. I'm about to lay some numbers on you, some statistics on you. Don't get lost in the numbers. But I'm doing this to help us see how desperate the need is in our world today. While it is notable and laudable, noteworthy and laudable, that Christianity is growing in many places, the reality is the share of Christians in the world, the percentage of the number of Christians in the world is a flat line or going down. Flat line or going down. At the turn of the century, the 20th century, moving from 1999 into the two, no, actually moving from 1899 into 19, early 1900s, 35.5% of the world was Christian. By the time we entered the 21st century, that number had fallen to 32.2% of the world was Christian. So we've we've grown so much that we've gone from 34.5% of the world is Christian to 32.2%. The number is going down. Currently, the world's population growth is 1.18%. The, number, the percentage of growth of Christians in the world is 1.17%. So we're not even keeping up with the growth of population. While Christianity's growth is essentially even, slightly losing ground, Hinduism, 1.21%. Sikhism, Islam, almost 2% even, 1.93, are growing faster than Christianity. You say, well, what do these groups believe? Hinduism originated in India. No known founder. They follow a god named Hindu. Their holy language is Sanskrit. The mandir or the temple is their holy building. They have a pandit or a priest. The book is the Vedas Gita. And their festivals are Diwali and Hali. What is not included there, they have many gods. So they, 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 they don't have a problem with Jesus or God. They just put him on the shelf with everybody else. If you were to go to a Hindu... Uh, house of worship, you'll see many gods represented. Buddhism, also found in India. No god. They follow Buddha. They don't really have a holy language. The temple is their holy place. The Tripitka is their leader, I mean, their holy book. And they have various festivals as well. And then Sikhism is kind of almost the opposite of Hinduism in, the, in that they are very monotheistic. Just as Christianity is monotheistic. That's about the only similarity. 
Their founder was Guru Nanak. Their god is Wahaguru. Not our god, but a different god, Wahaguru. They only worship one god. Their holy language is Punjabi. Their holy building is Gurdwara. And their holy book is a Tripatka. Judaism and Christianity at least worship God. But do you know the difference? We receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they're still waiting for the Messiah. And Islam worships Allah, founded in Saudi Arabia. Their founder was Muhammad. Their language, holy language, is Arabic. In fact, the only correct version of the Quran is in Arabic. In my library, I have an Arabic version and an English version of the Quran. It's good to know your enemies. <laughs> it's good to know the other side. I also have a, uh, a copy of the Holy Scriptures of Jeho Jehovah Witnesses and some other groups as well. Uh, the Holy Book is the Quran, although I would say many Muslims really don't recognize or at least acknowledge all the things that are in the Quran. The Quran says we are to kill the infidel. Our news media says it doesn't say that. It is. I've read it. It's there. And so, now with all these different types of religions, we're the only one that worship a God that is alive and well. We can go to Buddha's temple, his gravesite. We can go to you know, the others, Muhammad's gravesite. We can go to the others. We can go to Jesus' gravesite, and it's empty. And I thank the Lord for that. So, all those other religions are growing, and we are not. Were it not for the explosive growth in Asia and Africa among Christians, Christianity would have plateaued and been drastically shrinking as a world religions in the Western culture. We are seeing miraculous things happen in the Islam world, uh, people coming to know Christ. I have sat with missionaries. I have been to Yemen and talked with um, what I call MBBs, Muslim-born Muslim believers. I've heard the stories. I don't have any reason to doubt them. We don't have time this morning to go through all the stories. So God is moving in miraculous ways, but we're not seeing that here in America, and we're definitely not seeing it in Europe. I think I told you the story about a friend of mine who was from Great Britain who was doing some work with Lifeway, and someone asked him, he says, what's it going to take to get the, uh, the people of Britain back to church? He says, back to church? What do you mean back? They haven't been there for generations. They have no concept of what, what church is, much less how to get them back. That's just not, you're not going to be able to do that. Currently, the world's population is growing at 2.11%. More than half the world's population live in urban centers. 4.5 billion people live in cities today. But Christianity is growing only at 1.5% among city dwellers. 
and Christianity continues to spread around the world, become less centralized in predominantly Christian nations, but the vast majority of non-Christians still don't even know a Christian or have a regular dialogue with them. Two billion people are completely unevangelizing. The International Mission Board Southern Baptist Convention calls those UUPGs, unreached, unengaged people groups. That brings us back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. For so long, we wanted to think of that as the city, the county, the state, and the nation, and the world. What the International Mission Board has done is helped us to understand when you look at what is written there and you look at it in the sense that the readers would have seen it in their language of that day, you're really talking more about people group. Because in Jerusalem, you had one type of people in one language. You get out into Judea, it's a little bit different. You get into Samaria, they don't like each other. That's a whole different people group, much less a different country. So when we look at countries around the world, we have to realize if we're talking China, you have all different types of people groups in China. If you're talking, uh, I know when I talked to Blessing and some of her Nigerian friends about the cultures, and Blessing, like, I'll, I'll come across a Nigerian name. Maybe he's a ba- he or she is a basketball player. Says, well, they're not from my area. How do you know that? By their name. It identifies a whole different people group within Nigeria. They say, well, it's a good thing we don't have that in America. Have you ever been to Boston? <laughs> I mean, you take a, you take a missions team from South Georgia and have them go up to Boston, Massachusetts and try and witness. It's going to be different. We had that, we had that in New York. We had an associational staff member come to do church planting, Alan and his wife, Debbie. <laughs> and shortly after they moved in, Debbie called my wife, Cheryl, and said, Cheryl, uh, can you order a pizza and have it delivered to our house? I gave her the information so that Cheryl would be able to pay for it, you know, and, and charge it to Alan and Debbie. And after it was done, Cheryl said, why do you want me to do that? She says, they can't understand me. Alan and Debbie were from South Georgia, <laughs> and we were in western New York. They couldn't understand her. And she was speaking English, but it just sounds a whole lot different. When we moved to the Walnut Ridge Hoxie area, it wasn't very long. We ran to someone in, I believe, must have been in the grocery store. And one of their comments was, as we were talking, you're not from here, are you? Because the way I speak is different than the way many Arkansans speak. So it's a little different. We have two billion people completely unevangelized. We have groups of people probably within a five mile radius of this church. 
who probably have never heard the gospel. Maybe their culture is different. Maybe their skin color is different. Maybe their language is different. We don't know. I'm going to get a demographic, hopefully I'll get it this week, of this area. So you understand what is going on around you and what needs to be done to reach the people around this church. So let's look at Acts chapter 9. And let's look at God's call, which I think is very interesting. As we think about this passage, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verses, let's look at verses 11 and 12. So the Lord, so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the place called Straight and inquire at the house of Judah, Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in that vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. When we think about God's call, one thing that is very common about it is the word go. Go. Even though it is not in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the word go is not there. But it starts off by saying, you shall be my witnesses in, and he names all the places. What that means literally is, as you are going, do this. So the implication is go. Same with Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go into all the world. What that is, as you are going. That really applies to 21st century uh, America. We're going all over the place. Now that COVID seems to be winding down, we're starting to go a little bit more than we used to. So Ananias responded with what? Look at verse 13. Actually, look back at uh, verse 10. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Abraham and Isaac. He called Abraham to the land of Ur. He couldn't go to Google Map and find out where Ur is. He just had to go. And he prayed and prayed and prayed. And God said, you will get a son. And he took some detours. Abraham did. But he finally got Isaac. And then the Lord said, go take Isaac and go to the mountain and sacrifice him. And what did Abraham do? He went to the mountain. He even went so far to tie up his son. Now, I don't know which is the greatest example of obedience. Abraham being willing to or Isaac letting him. You know, it says the boy, but I'm sure Isaac was probably strong enough because Abraham was a very old guy by this time. So I don't know which is the greater issue of a greater example of obedience in this passage and that story. But I, Abraham got to the point where he drew back the knife and was ready to kill the promise, the son that he had been promised for so long. 
And God told him, hold on here. Look over there in the thicket. And there was a ram suitable for sacrifice. What about the boy Samuel? In 1 Samuel chapter 3, God was calling him, and he kept thinking, no, you know, uh, he'd get up and he'd run in. said, did you call me? No. And finally he says, go back. That's the Lord calling you. Like three or four times. And when the Samuel realized it was the Lord calling him, he said, I will. So God's call is always go. Our answer is never optional. When he calls us, we need to go. When he calls, we need to go. What were the instructions? Go to Paul. Are you sure about that? He didn't say no, but he wanted to make sure it was clear that he understood, uh, I, I know who this Paul guy is, and I don't think I want to go there. The Lord explained to him what had happened. God responded, he's my chosen instrument. And Ananias' re- reaction is understandable. It should not be seen as his refusing to go, but he just wants to make sure he understands what God wants him to do. So God calls. His call is to always go. His call is never optional. Look at verses 17 to 19. The people respond. Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Think about this. God calls us to do what? Go. That call is never optional. My God-given purpose is intertwined with somebody else. When God calls us to go and talk to someone, we may be the only one that can go and talk to that person. And if we don't, who will? God called us. God called you to go and give. Someone's miracle is on the other side of my obedience to God's call. Paul, because of the whole experience on the Damascus Road, was blind. Why? I think one reason why God made Paul blind is so that he could focus only on one thing, hearing from God. And what did Paul do during that time of darkness? God told Ananias that he's, he's praying. I heard someone preacher say, he had three years of seminary to catch up in a few days. <laughs> you know, when I was in seminary, we took, we took semester classes in four weeks. That was tough. Well, that, that's what Midwestern did at the time. But I can't imagine cramming everything. That, I mean, the disciples had three years to walk with Jesus. Paul only had a very short time. Just a matter of days, practically, to catch up. No wonder he was blind because he had to get away from everything else just to focus on what he was learning. 
But then Ananias came, and it's like scales fell from his eyes. But the scales don't fall unless Ananias obeys. Who is it in your world that has scales on their eyes, and you may be the one to bring God's word to them to help the scales fall away? My role in the church, one, is to pray for the church and for the leaders of the church. Two, make disciples. Make disciples. What does Matthew 28, 19, and 20 tell us to do? And do what? Make disciples. Number three, serve the needs of the church. The needs of the church right here is to reach people. Number four, give to support missions. That's Miss Annie, Miss Lottie, and Miss Dixie. You know who all three of those ladies are? We need to give and support them. For many years, Cheryl and I were full-time missionaries with the North American Mission Board. I did a 10-day mission trip with the International Mission Board. I've seen firsthand what God can do through our gifts. And 100% of our gifts to Annie and Lottie go to the field they don't go to administration and all that other kind of stuff. They go to the field. That's why the number one way to help have an impact either in disaster relief or hunger relief is through our Southern Baptist Convention World Hunger Funds and our Arkansas Baptist Convention Disaster Relief Funds because they go to the field. We already have the people in the field. We don't have to worry about paying that additional because they're already there. And we're able to take and, and get that to the field in a more productive manner. And then also included in all of my roles in the church is to go with the gospel. And look what happened in verses 19 and 20. So when he, Paul, had was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. I wonder what he was doing. I think he was learning, and I think he was teaching. He had his first congregation right there. Lives were changed in that passage. That is our role in the church. And I hope each of us will take that seriously going forward. You and I have a monumental task but I love what it says at the end of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That means to your neighbor's house. That means to your coworker. That means to whoever God sends you to. And we're not responsible for the results, by the way. We're only responsible for going and telling. Yeah, that was all Ananias had to do. Ananias had to obey to go, and he had to tell in obedience his message to Paul, and God takes care of the rest. Ananias didn't knock the scales off his eyes. God did. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you. We praise you, God, for today. We thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, I thank you that you've given us a task. You've given us a role in the church that we are to go and make disciples, that we are to pray for the church and for leaders, that we are to give and support missions, that we are to help support the various functions of the church, and we are to go with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be willing, humble servants every day of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you.